Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayad. At the age of five, the Maharaja Jagajit Singh came to the throne of his northwest Indian province in the heart of the Punjab. For 60 years, he has ruled it wisely and well, cooperating with the British government. At the start of the 20th century, Britain had been in India for nearly 300 years, with almost half that time ruling the country. From every corner of the state, they bring him gifts. It would stay on for five decades more. They weigh him with pieces of solid gold, which afterwards are distributed to the poor. The alienating force of colonialism had upended the way Indians thought about themselves and their relationships to each other. You have, by virtue of the British colonial project, kind of really sets up the institutional framework of knowledge production in India, the universities, the schools, etc. Right. So they are taught a specific kind of history and a specific kind of geography, you know, the, the whole range of it. And, and so British historiography of India becomes a very important shaping tool for Indian minds. But change was coming. 31 guns salute the arrival at New Delhi of Lord Mountbatten, the 20th and last Viceroy of India. Change that would entail a massive shift in mindset. Reconcile the inheritance of British colonialism and modernity with the long histories of India's peoples. Scenes of unforgettable splendor, Delhi celebrated the first anniversary of the Indian Republic. The poet-philosopher Muhammad Iqbal would spend decades on this reconciliation project through poetry, philosophy, and politics. Iqbal's project is wide-ranging, and his purpose is to integrate things that seem disparate, seem as if there aren't connections between them, those having to do with theology, those having to do with God, those having to do with how human beings interact with the universe, and the implications of these things for what it means to be a person. While Muhammad Iqbal is popularly known as the intellectual founder of Pakistan, his greater fame stems from his poetry, especially in Persian. The form of existence is an effect of the self. Whatsoever thou seest is a secret of the self. Poetry was a vehicle for him to think about our relationship to God and to the world a dramatically changing world in the mid-20th century. This tension, I suppose, this kind of un- uncertainty about what it is that the future of the Muslim community is, is going to look like, especially in, but not limited to, South Asia. This is something that I think we can really see in his poetic output, and especially um, in his lyric poetry. When the self awoke to consciousness, it revealed the universe of thought. Iqbal's image today is primarily as the provider of the ideology that underpins the creation of Pakistan. In this episode, Ideas producer Nahid Mustafa examines the life and work of one of the greatest South Asian thinkers of the 20th century, Muhammad Iqbal. 
The form of existence is an effect of the self. Whatsoever thou seest is a secret of the self. When the self awoke to consciousness, it revealed the universe of thought. Secrets of the Self, Muhammad Ekbal. My first, what you might call intellectual or academic uh, encounter with Iqbal was actually uh, at LUMS, where I teach now. I, I was an undergraduate student here, where in the course I, I came across the reconstruction of religious thought in Islam, and it was it was very impactful uh, for me at, during that semester. Um, and part of it is because of the various genres of concerns, various like disparate things that he could bring together, how he could talk about scripture and Einstein and poetry and history and philosophy in the same paragraph. And that was, uh, that was dizzying in, in a good way. The self rises, kindles, falls, glows, breathes, burns, shines, walks, and flies. The spaciousness of time is its arena. Heaven is a billow of the dust on its road. My name is Noman Fezi. I am an assistant professor of religion at Lums University in Lahore, Pakistan. And I teach courses in the philosophy of religion. So he, he looms, Iqbal looms large in the landscape of Pakistan. You, the, the, the phrase associated with him is, uh, he's, the, he's the poet philosopher of Pakistan. He's the, and that's what you grow up in. You have, I recall, participating in events called the Iqbal Day as a, as a, as a young kid in school. So he's, he's everywhere in, in, in that sense. It's a particular incident that comes to mind. Uh, uh, it's a conversation with my father, and he talked about how Iqbal's notion of selfhood was how, like, it was significant, and how if I got, like, if I got a sense of what that was, it would help me lead uh, a fulfilled life. Uh, so, so you've got him spread over like the national landscape, but and the conversation that I was having that I'm recounting here with my father, I can imagine parallel conversations in other households. So he's all part of familial conversations as well. Iqbal's image today is primarily as the provider of the ideology that underpins the creation of Pakistan. But Fazi says given the vastness of Iqbal's work, it's not always possible to settle on a single understanding. Speaking about his body of work in general, uh, its reception has been um, varied and, and fractured. So there are those who have received Iqbal heroically, those who have received him dismissively, and others who've tried to carve out uh, a middle path between these two. Uh, There is certainly material in there that can foster uh, a national, that that can support a nationalist project. But there's also material in there that, that talks about nationalism as a, for instance, in one of his poems, as a false god. Uh, More specifically, in the reconstruction of religious thought in Islam, nationalism isn't a theme that's uh, thematized uh, or that's discussed in any great detail. Um, He he does talk about Islam and the Muslim community and the relationship between contemporary Muslims and uh, and earlier Muslims and the relationship between contemporary Muslims and the history of Islam in detail. But this specific part of his work isn't... uh, flavored or colored in a nationalist or anti-nationalist vein. 
but certainly there's material for nationalism as well as its opposite uh, in Iqbal's broader corpus. It must, however, be remembered that there is no such thing as finality in philosophical thinking. As knowledge advances and fresh avenues of thought are opened, other views, and probably sounder views than those set forth in these lectures, are possible. Our duty is carefully to watch the progress of human thought and to maintain an independent critical attitude towards it. Muhammad Iqbal, The Reconstruction of Religious Thought in Islam Noman Fazi has looked specifically at one of Iqbal's English contributions called The Reconstruction of Religious Thought in Islam. The book is a collection of lectures delivered by Iqbal on Islamic philosophy and first published in 1930. In it, Iqbal attempts to engage in the fundamental question of whether religion can be reconciled with modernity. Fazi's book is called God, Science, and Self. What is the character and general structure of the universe in which we live? Is there a permanent element in the constitution of this universe? How are we related to it? What place do we occupy in it? And what is the kind of conduct that befits the place we occupy? It's a world where, uh, where especially folks who are, who are tied to the educational apparatus of British colonial rule, where folks are trying to reflect on the consequences of European philosophy and European science on the scriptural resources of Islam. So it's a world, it's an intellectual world that's uh, experimental, that's also driven by a sense of anxiety about the past and its relevance in the present. So and so I, I think that broadly captures a, a, a world where folks are trying to reimagine what the relationship between their past and their present could look like. And that leads to both anxiety, creativity, experimentation in such, in, in, in such thinking. Iqbal's project in the reconstruction of religious thought in Islam is wide-ranging. And his purpose is to integrate things that seem disparate, seem as if there aren't connections between them. So I think my title gives a nod at that. It's not as if connections between God, science, and self are unimaginable, but it it does sort of hint at how these have to be constructed, and uh, they're, they're not obvious, I suppose. His legacy is today especially, right, exactly as you said, as a kind of ideologue, right? This um, founding father, you know, the Hakim al-Ummah, people say, the sort of philosopher, physician um, of the modern Muslim community. And, you know, I think in a way, the sort of overdetermination, perhaps, of his role um, politically in um, the, the creation of, um, you know, the nation state that would become Pakistan. Um, of course, he he dies before partition, but the sort of overdetermination of of hindsight, as I was saying, I think tends to cover over, I suppose, the real kind of fraught engagements that he had with the question. It seems to me that God is slowly bringing home to us the truth that Islam is neither nationalism nor imperialism, but a league of nations, which recognizes artificial boundaries and racial distinctions for facility of reference only, and not for restricting the social horizon of its members. 
far from being a kind of done deal, I suppose, uh, you know, there was a considerable amount of debate, of contestation, um, of doubt, of uncertainty, um, you know, among the Muslim community in the years leading up to uh, the partition of India. My name is Francesca Chubb-Confer, and I'm a visiting assistant professor of religion at Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. Chubb Confer studies a specific poetic form favored by Iqbal called the Ghazal. It has particular meters, a specific rhyming scheme, and is always written in couplets. The Ghazal has deep roots in Persian Sufi tradition and is embedded in the cultural and literary traditions connected to figures like Rumi or Hafez. Beyond the stars are yet more worlds. There are yet more tests of love. This expanse is not devoid of life. Here, there are hundreds of other travelers. These kinds of poems are um, inherently ambiguous, right? They really thrive on um, cultivating in, in the reader a kind of instability. There's a lot of paradoxical language that's, that's used. And one of the most, I don't know, sort of contested uh, figures in the Guzzle universe um, is this figure of the eroticized beloved. Be not content with the world of color and fragrance. There are other gardens, other places to rest. If a home is lost, why grieve? There are other places for sighing and lamenting. People will read a poem and and it's like, is this, you know, description, um, this sort of, you know, this very beautiful, this very poetic description of love. Is it supposed to be human love, right? Is it supposed to be divine love? Um, is it supposed to be, uh, you know, sort of sacred or secular? Is it supposed to be literal or, or metaphorical? Um, and of course, you know, to my mind, the answer is, well, it's, all, it's sort of a, a both and, right? <laughs> the, the, the way that the poems um are, are sort of inviting you in and challenging you at, at, at the same time is to occupy this very, um, this very tension, right? This very kind of in-between space of always being able to sustain multiple interpretations at the same time and even contradictory interpretations um, at the same time. So I think it's no, it's, it's no accident that, that this particular poetic form, right, is what is so generative for uh, Iqbal in considering, right, these really um, fraught questions um, of Islamic identity, right, that he's able to um, write poems that are drawing on this tradition that are being written in these um, poetic forms that allow him to sustain um, these multiple layers of simultaneous interpretation. You are a falcon. Your task is to fly. Before you, there are yet other skies. I would describe him as a poet who is deeply invested with the sort of anxieties uh, of influence um, and of inheritance, but also one who's really interested in making connections. Um, he was, you know, deeply learned in um, Western literary and philosophical traditions, as well as um, Islamic ones. And his Poetry, especially uh, works like his last uh, major kind of like magnum opus, um, this narrative poem called the Javed Nama, which is sort of mo which is modeled on Dante's Divine Comedy, but 
you know, sort of takes us on a, on a voyage and <laughs> this like celestial voyage, um, not only through um, Indian history and Islamic history, but, you know, brings in Western figures as well. Tolstoy and Nietzsche make appearances um, that he, you know, sees himself as writing at the same time, right. As sort of, you know, for a, a community at, in a particular moment in history, um, but also at the same time, right, for the world. So instead of um, having the narrator be guided through the circles of hell by Virgil, right, in this, um, in this piece, our narrator has Rumi for a guide. Rumi said, rise and take a step forward. Do not let slip this wakeful fortune. Its interior is fairer than its exterior. Another world lurks hidden in its hollows. Whatever presents itself to you, man of the sense, sees it in the rings of the eye and the ear. If the eye has vision, everything is worth seeing, worthy to be weighed in the glance's balance. And Rumi sort of takes him on this celestial journey, <laughs> ascending through the spheres, um, where, you know, we, we meet um, various figures um, from Indian history, from European history and literature, um, from Islamic um, philosophy and history as well. Wheresoever Rumi leads, there go. Be estranged a moment or two from all but he. Gently he drew my hand towards him. Then swiftly he sped to the mouth of a crater. It's really like this kind of eclectic, wide-ranging meditation on all of these different issues. You you know, it's kind of like, this poem has everything, right? Um, Theology and politics and literature. And and the other thing that I I, I like about it, you know, as a a scholar of lyric poetry, is, is that it also has... Guzzles. Um, so there are moments in this narrative verse, almost maybe like the the breaks in a in a musical, where you have characters who who kind of break out of um, the rhyme and meter of this of the surrounding narrative to present these little interludes um, that are written as guzzles um, that are these kind of lyric moments where we pause the way that we had been reading or listening and kind of temporarily inhabit um, a new space, um, which I just think is such an interesting way for him to combine kind of like the two major um, forms that he he engaged with um, together in this one narrative. Like a blind man, my hand on my companion's shoulder, I placed my foot within a deep cavern. The moon's heart was sore ravaged by its darkness. Within it, even the sun would have needed a lamp. The demands of colonial modernity in India had upended what it meant to be a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist. It had upended Indian sense of time and place and cut educated Indians off from their own history. It imposed a foreign language and then marked acquiring that language as a sign of progress. It is in this milieu that Indian thinkers and writers were trying to envision the modern Indian subject. So English begins, as it were, uh, to gain ground in India really with the establishment of 
English as the official language of instruction, which is in the early 19th century. And this helps in the production of uh, a class, as Macaulay calls it, the class of interpreters, uh, Indian in blood and color, but English in tastes and morals, who would serve essentially as the mediating class between uh, the natives and the rulers. And in the course of the uh, 19th and by the time we reach the early 20th century, you have a kind of a incipient middle class forming uh, in Bengal and then eventually all over the country. And it's these middle classes and the upper classes who really kind of take to English and um, speak the language of the colonizers and at times back at them. My name is Shundeep Banerjee. I am an associate professor of English at McGill University. I work on questions of colonization, decolonization, aesthetics, and the environmental humanities, with largely focusing on South Asia. So South Asia historically has been, you know, from times immemorial, a multilingual space, a multiverse, if you will. And there's always been a kind of trans-regional language. It was Sanskrit. In one part, uh, at one moment in time, it was Persian in the Mughal state, and uh, it becomes English with the advent of the colonizer in the early 19th century onwards. Now, uh, by virtue of it being trans-regional, these languages, and in our context, English becomes the language that serves as a kind of unifying force. It has a, for the British, it has a kind of centralizing purpose of you know, being the state language, the language of command, the language through which to govern India. And for Indians, it becomes the language to speak across regions and articulate eventually a kind of nationhood for uh, for the people. And so it becomes, at one level, a kind of unifying space where you can speak across regions. But at the same time, it also becomes by the same token, a divisive space because it's, it becomes a mark, marker of class, marker of elitism, uh, and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, English allows, by virtue of it being this kind of trans-regional uh, local or providing this trans-regional trans locus to uh, these Indians, it allows for the articulation of various kinds of claims. So political rights, political subjectivities, uh, eventually religious subjectivities and, you know, religious political subjectivities. So a whole range of demands can be made, particularly to the British state. And it becomes a site of, in a sense, of collaboration as well as contestation, both within groups and also of uh, the colonizing power. In 1174, there was a bad harvest. So food became a little dear in 1175. The people were in distress, but the state realized its dues to the last penny. Having paid down the royal dues, the poor people satisfied themselves with but one meal a day and struggled on. There was a good shower during the rains of 1175, and the people thought with joy that the gods had perhaps smiled on them. The shepherd began his carol again, and the peasant's wife began to tease her spouse for her silver amulet. From Bunkin Chandra Chatterjee's Anandamut. Just to think about fiction, for instance, uh, because uh, when, when you move to nonfiction, it's kind of a wider world. You have people, for instance, like Bunkin Chandra Chatterjee, who's writing Anandamut. This is a novel that's coming out in 1882. 
And it's one of the first, probably the first novel written in Bengali that is talking about the Indian nation. Or Actually, there's no conception of India yet. Bengal as a mother ravaged by colonizers. This idea of a motherland is being framed and articulated. Those who reaped a harvest at all had their crop bought up by the state for the support of its army. The people therefore starved. At first they had one meal a day, and then they went on half rations, and then they starved the whole day. And the song Vande Mataram becomes, which comes out of this text, becomes very important for the freedom struggle, shapes Hindu-Muslim relationship in a specific way, but nevertheless is very powerful because it popularizes the notion of the mother. And over time, this novel and the song gets taken up uh, and, and put to use for thinking about all of India, not just Bengal. So for the novel, which is about Bengal, appears to signify all of India and, you know, uh, the motherland and all the rest of it. Subramanian Bharati at this point uh, is also writing poems about uh, the Indian nation, uh, uh, motherland. So this is in Tamil Nadu. Uh, so this is one idea of space. You have, by the uh, early uh, 20th century, Iqbal writing about, you know, a homeland for Muslims. So, so that's another articulation. And along this time, you have Tagore, who is talking incessantly about India, not as a nation, not as a state, but as a civil, shared civilizational space. Um, so, so these are just like three or four of the ways the idea of the nation is being signaled in writing. Elevate the self to such a rank that even God, before writing your destiny, will ask, what is it that you desire? Iqbal, like other Indian thinkers of the time, was speaking and writing for multiple audiences, depending on which language he was using. He was speaking to multiple constituencies and also trying to think about Muslims for Muslims. But the colonial audience was often working to invalidate or at least devalue the work of Indians. You have, by virtue of sort of the British colonial project, kind of really sets up the institutional framework of knowledge production in India, the universities, the schools, etc. Right. So they are taught a specific kind of history and a specific kind of geography, you know, the, the whole range of it. And and so British historiography of India becomes a very important shaping tool of Indian minds, for Indian minds. And it is only much later that it gets transcended and critiqued. So you have colonial historiography, you have nationalist historiography, you have Marxist historiography, you have uh, right-wing historiography of various kinds. You know, the Muslims have done this to us and the Hindus have done this to us, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And, um, and then you have other forms of uh, history writing. Uh, so, so religion is important, but as uh, scholars now, and there's a lot of work happening in pre-colonial India, because one of the things that is lost, and this is, again, important to keep in mind, so a lot of literary cultural productions happening in Persian. In 1835, uh, with the Indian Instruction Act, I think it's called, where, which establishes English as the official medium of instruction, what is really lost is access to Persian. So you have a group of people, 
across the country essentially being made to forget their history by virtue of not having access to the language in which those histories, etc., were written. And it's only now that people are going there and they see that, uh, of course, there is a sense of difference between, say, Hindus and Muslims in the Mughal uh, Empire, but it's a lot more complex and nuanced and sophisticated than just a bunch of people having a go at each other, which is often how it's portrayed in, in, in English. I feel like narrating this this little incident from the book where Iqbal sort of invited to uh, present the Rhodes Lectures and Iqbal, imag- like Iqbal wants to talk about, is it okay if I, if I narrate oh, that a little bit as a way to, yeah. yeah. So uh, here's, here's the example that he's, he's basically invited by the Rhodes Memorial sort of to, to deliver the Rhodes Memorial Lecture at Oxford University in 1934. And he says that he wants to talk about time and space in the history of Muslim thought, right? And the secretary of the Rhodes Trust writes back and says, that the, that the lectures are of a more public and wider nature. And, you know, why doesn't he... So, you know, he, he wants to talk about time and space in the history of Muslim thought. You know, the topic he gets back or like they settle on is Islam in the modern world. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? So you can see, the, see, see like, you know, he wants, to talk, he wants to do like, you know, like technical thinking. And, and he says, you know, you just, you know, talk about Islam in the modern world. And, and this is how... Uh, one of the folks who's involved in making this conversation happen with between the Rhodes Memorial Lecture and Iqbal, he says, Iqbal is, quote, very sensitive about the charge brought against Muhammadanism, that it is a sterile, low-grade religion, giving nothing on the metaphysical side for the mind to bite on, infinitely inferior here to Christianity and Hinduism, unquote. Iqbal is, quote, ambitious, as his lectures show, i.e. the reconstruction of religious thought in Islam, they're ambitious lectures, right? As his lectures show, to Islam on the world map metaphysically. And Iqbal wants to prove that Islam has great philosophy and great philosophers. Iqbal thinks that he's coming to Oxford to, quote, launch a world-shaking philosophy, unquote, whereas his task is merely giving a jolly show for Islam. So, I mean, that gives you a window into the kind of, uh, there is Iqbal trying to be a spokesperson, but he's also being received as like this ambitious philosopher who doesn't really know what his place is. And so that's the kind of, that's the kind of polemical milieu in which he's trying to do his thinking. It's, it's in conversation with colonial thinkers, but you can see the sort of footing in which it's in conversation with them. It's also in conversation with other Muslim thinkers who are trying to have conversations among themselves of what it means to be Muslim. And there are debates there, but they are speaking to sort of uh, the kind of audience I just mentioned. We're going to translate their claims <laughs> in, in ways that are, as you just saw, uh, productive. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fairly insulting, right? We're like, your most significant philosophic work is is being received as a jolly show for Islam. And I'm saying, if you are in this sort of delegitimating environment and you're not a thinker who is wounded, a thinker who is contradictory, something's off. (laughs) Something is off. (laughs) You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America, on Sirius XM, 
in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Muhammad Iqbal published his most famous poem, Shikwa, The Complaint, in 1909. The poem is a telling of modern-day Muslims' grievances against God. He's turned his back, the Muslims complain, leaving them bereft despite everything they've done for God. When Iqbal recited Shikwa for the first time at a poetry gathering in Lahore, the clerics were quick to label him an infidel. In 1913, Iqbal published Jawab e Shikwa, answer to the complaint. In that poem, he assumed the voice of God, protesting that he has broken no promises and that whatever problems Muslims face are of their own making. On hearing this vindication of God, the clerics forgave Iqbal and welcomed him back into the fold. Iqbal commented on that irony, saying, when he spoke for man, he was declared a heretic. But when he spoke for God, he was declared a believer. In this episode, Ideas producer Nahid Mustafa looks at the work of writer and thinker Muhammad Iqbal and his enduring contribution to poetry and philosophy. By the mid-1800s, the East India Company was functioning as a sovereign power in India on behalf of the British crown. In 1857, there was a major uprising, the Indian Rebellion, which spread across northern India. The defeat of that rebellion brought with it more divisive British policies. Shandeep Banerjee is Associate Professor of English Literature at McGill University. With the defeat of the 1857 uprising, you have a specific form of British state policy being enacted. So it wants to actually, in some ways, actively divide India. You mentioned uh, South Asian diversity. And the two major ways of thinking about diversity, one is in terms of linguistic communities, so language and linguistic communities, and the other would be religion and religious communities. And you could map the same space in two very different ways, depending on, you know, which uh, you kind of focus on. It just so happens that the British focus on the religious, and part of this is the work of the Orientalists who kind of think of India as this kind of land of religion. It's a land of Hindus and Buddhists. And Islam is this kind of uh, religion that comes from outside. And this gets uh, normalized in uh, colonial um, ideology and then gets reproduced in native ideology by the Hindus and the Muslims 
because what, firstly, what happens is it's a religious identity that gets privileged and it becomes uh, this churning about whether India is home to both the religions or there are two nations that have, uh, you know, lived for uh, times immemorial. Now, this situation nevertheless is uh, is not the only situation as it were there are competing political visions at this point uh, most popularly or most commonsensically i think uh, the uh, we could think of uh, the hindu mahasabha and the kind of the hindu right and the muslim league imaginations as kind of being um, analogous to each other india is a land of hindus or there's a kind of two nations which have lived uh, from times immemorial, etc., which kind of undermines both the uh, religious diversity across regions within uh, South Asia, but also underplays the question of language, which is particularly going to come and, as it were, come back to haunt Pakistan in a very different way after 47, in the context of Bengal and Bangladesh. Iqbal was fundamentally gripped by the question, how do Muslims reconcile with the modern world? He said hundreds of years of colonial presence had left them broken from their past and thinking that they could only survive by abandoning their religion and embracing colonial values. But Iqbal is never entirely clear what he means by religion or even how he defines Muslim. Does Muslim describe a language community or a regional one? Is Muslim only a religious identity, or does it signify a particular history? Muhammad Iqbal was both a product of colonialism, but also working to throw it off. The mission was to repair the broken Muslim. Noman Fazi is assistant professor of religion at the Lahore University of Management Sciences. So is, is it okay if I read out like Iqbal's own words? Oh, absolutely. This is, absolutely. This, so this is to give you a sense of the the gravity of what Iqbal is is, grap- is grappling with. So, so here it goes. This is what Iqbal says. In the modern Muslim young man, we have produced a specimen of character whose intellectual life has absolutely no background of Muslim culture without which, in my opinion, he is only half a Muslim, or even less than that, provided his purely secular education has left his religious belief unshaken. He has been allowed, I am afraid, to assimilate Western habits of thought to an alarming extent. Our young man is is deplorably ignorant of the life history of his own community. Intellectually, he is a slave to the West, and his undivided devotion to an alien culture is a kind of imperceptible conversion to that culture, a conversion which may involve much more serious consequences than conversion to a new religion. Having been in close touch with the student life of today for the last 10 or 12 years and teaching a subject closely related to religion, it has been my painful experience that the Muslim student ignorant of the social, ethical, and political ideals that have dominated the mind of his community, is spiritually dead, unquote. So, I mean, you can see here, I mean, this is loud, right? This, this is, this is grave. This, these are alarm bells. So what Iqbal generates in response to this is a way to integrate rather than in his words, to assimilate and slavishly adopt Western habits of thought. 
That's that's the kind of project that he is trying to generate. And my argument is that as he does this, he's he's going to if potentially offer uh, ways of integrating what he takes as Western and Islamic habits of thought. He is going to do the antithesis of what he's saying here, which is to say that to offer uh, sort of Islamic habits of thought as the contrary, as, as like irreconcilable with Western habits of thought. And he's going to generate forms of assimilation that he is himself critical of. And so, so my claim is that if you are in as much mess as you, as, you know, as Iqbal thinks that he's in, he's, he's going to do like all three things and not just him, but any, any such thinker. My, my, my broadest claim is that Iqbal is trying to wrestle with questions about the relationship between modernity and religion, philosophy and science. And this grappling generates uh, inconsistencies. But I do not uh, view these inconsistencies as blemishes. I don't view them as a problem. Uh, my case is that if you're a thinker who's trying, who, who claims that you're surrounded by a world that's full of problems, that's, that's at odds with itself, that's broken, where things don't quite add up, then that has got to, if you belong to the world that you're discussing, that has got to show up in your own thinking as well. So uh, I'm, I'm not sort of making a claim about how he's deliberately using uh, the reconstruction to, uh, to be inconsistent, but I am claiming that a, a thinker dealing with huge problems or a thinker who claims that they're dealing with huge problems that problem has to surface in their own thinking. And that's a great sign because it lets you know as a reader that what you're dealing with has been produced in the, in the world that needs fixing. The spirit of philosophy is one of free inquiry. It suspects all authority. Its function is to trace the uncritical assumptions of human thought to their hiding places. And in this pursuit, it may finally end in denial or a frank admission of the incapacity of pure reason to reach the ultimate reality. The essence of religion, on the other hand, is faith. And faith, like the bird, sees its trackless way, unattended by intellect, which, in the words of the great mystic poet of Islam, Rumi, only waylays the living heart of man and robs it of the invisible wealth of life that lies within. So I read this as a property and function of any project of reform. If one has taken upon themselves the task of trying to fix the world that's broken, one, and two, one also belongs to that world, the, the process of trying to fix it will wound the thinker who, who's, who's engaging these problems. So the a vocabulary that's, that I've used in the, in the book is that I've, I've said that the reconstruction, like other reformist projects, are appropriately inconsistent, are rationally incons inconsistent, that is, which is to say it is reasonable that they are inconsistent. The inconsistency that Fazi talks about is also a function of language and form. The Reconstruction is a philosophical meditation written in English, where perhaps inconsistency ends up framed as a failing. In poetry, inconsistency can be edifying. 
Francesca Chubb-Confer is Associate Professor of Religion at Whitman College. He's someone um, who's, again, very interested in in connections, right? (laughs) I mean, he certainly, there's a lot for him to critique, right, Uh, about uh, especially, uh, you know, British um, history, but sort of broader European histories of, um, you know, cultural and political domination. But he's also very, you know, he finds a lot of value uh, and a lot of connections that he makes. He has something where he says, oh, you know, the greatest sort of influences on my, uh, you know, on my writing have been, you know, Ghalib and and Beydil, these, you know, exemplars of of the Urdu and the Persian poetic traditions, you know, but also, you know, Goethe and, and, and Wordsworth. Um, and he was very much, he was very interested, you know, um, in Marx, um, in Nietzsche, in Dante, of course. I, he never writes anything kind of di- directly, but, you know, the, the Javed Nama, the poem that I mentioned earlier, is clearly like in direct conversation with that. That reminds me, there's a a, a project that sadly he never, he, he wrote about this in his letters, but he, you know, he died before it came to fruition where he talked about wanting to translate Milton um, into Urdu, right? Paradise Lost into Urdu. He's really into um, into Milton and into this idea of um, seeing Lucifer as kind of a liberatory figure, right? But he, yeah, he. I mean, he was very. In I mean, I think he was deeply influenced by the you know sort of the Western um, poets that he's he's reading. And he's interested in them, like the, the sort of, I guess, the way that he's engaging them is sort of reading them into the the Islamic literary tradition, or sort of imagining them as um, uh, as as interlocutors for Islamic thought, right? Like he has, there's a poem, um, a Persian poem, in one of his uh, earlier collections that's you know, this kind of imagined conversation between Rumi and, and Goethe. He engages with, you know, Nietzsche kind of across the the span of his career, as well as Marx, they kind of pop up <laughs> um, as, as traces um, in, in various places. In paradise, that perceptive German happened upon the master of the East. Where is a poet of such stature? Though not a prophet, he is possessed of scripture. To the one who knew divine secrets, he read about the pact of the devil and the doctor. Rumi said, you who brings words to life and hunt angels and God, your thought has made its home in the inner recesses of the heart and created this old world anew. For Iqbal, poetry, right, is, is, the, is the space where he can work through these issues in a style that is doesn't have to be so certain about everything right? in a um in a space where he can you know think through and kind of write through these engagements um with language with tradition um with thinking about what form is uh, muslim identity going to be taking um, in the you know in the 20th century in, in its relationship to colonial power right um, that he can think about all of these things um, in a in a way that allows for some doubt right some some uncertainty about what's supposed to happen or what's that supposed to look like um, some sort of some ambivalence about those questions in a way that I think as you were saying right is is sort of not so much possible when you're you know, for example, 
delivering these English speeches that are specifically supposed to be about (laughs) uh, kind of reconstructing Islam. Abandon the East, be not spellbound by the West, for all this ancient and new is not worth one barley corn. That signet ring which you gambled away to Ahriman should not be pledged even to trusty Gabriel. Life, that ornament of society, is guardian of itself. You who are of the caravan, travel alone, yet go with all. You have come forth brighter than the all-illumining sun, so live that you may radiate evermore. Surprisingly, there's not that much engagement um, with the kind of nuts and bolts of his poetry, right? Of, of how he's working through these questions in a variety of poetic forms and in a variety of, of different languages uh, as well. Of course, people read and, and, and recite um, his work all the time. Um, it's just that his poetry is usually taken to have this kind of teleological message almost, right? That sort of everything he ever wrote, you know, must necessarily be contributing to, right, this idea um, of of Pakistan as, you know, the sort of pinnacle of like the modern Muslim um, nation state. And so it gets, um, the, the sort of the art and the craft of his poetry is considered as secondary to, right, or, or somehow just like a vehicle for um, his other commitments, right, his philosophical or his his political commitments. But the poetry, I think, it is the exemplary site where we can see him really grappling with these issues, with these tensions, um, and working through these questions of, you know, what it means to, to be a Muslim at this point in time, right? What is the relationship between, or what should the relationship be um, between the inheritances of a classical tradition and the demands of colonial modernity? How did Iqbal understand the challenge of, of modernity? Uh, I mean, was it something that he felt could be could be reconciled, or, or was it more like modernity is something we need to overcome? So that's that's interesting. So in in my read, like. I, I do go back and forth on this. So sometimes uh, I, I see Iqbal as thinking of, of, of modernity as a total condition, but at other times, just pluralizing a word, does, word doesn't do much, you know, just because you, you say modernities, right? Does it, does it, doesn't by itself guarantee that you've actually offered something new. But I do think that Iqbal, at his best, he is trying to offer a way for a Muslim to be to be able to take uh, scriptural sources, uh, the scientific investigation of nature, and the social scientific investigation of of, of of culture, how these inquiries can be integrated in the same subject. So I would argue that he's he's trying to lay down the the conditions. Uh, both intellectual, um, if he can, institutional, through which Muslim subjects can be whole. Uh, so, in that sense, modernity is uh, it's uh, in a it's a diffused phenomenon. During all the centuries of our intellectual stupor, Europe has been seriously thinking on the great problems in which the philosophers and scientists of Islam were so keenly interested. 
Since the Middle Ages, when the schools of Muslim theology were completed, infinite advance has taken place in the domain of human thought and experience. The extension of man's power over nature has given him a new faith and a fresh sense of superiority over the forces that constitute his environment. New points of view have been suggested, old problems have been restated in the light of fresh experience, and new problems have arisen. It seems as if the intellect of man is outgrowing its own fundamental categories, time, space, and causality. I have wrestled with the reconstruction for like for more than 10, 12 years. For, for me as a young, young undergraduate student, it offered a, a way of making things hang and stick together and synchronize and integrate, which I didn't think could. What I'm trying to achieve through the book is offer a model offer a way of reading texts that appear confusing, texts that appear like their claims don't add up, a model for reading them where I'm arguing that it's possible to trace their sort of their wounds, their disjunctures to the struggle that these texts are a part of, which is that they're written in a problematic context they're trying to address that problematic context. And when you do that, uh, you, you generate thought that's, that's out of joint with itself. So it's a model to, to that, that can hopefully do justice to the complexity of this work rather than treating its complexity or its out of jointness as a flaw. And not just the reconstruction. So my, I'm, if, I can, if, if I can permit myself to be a little expansive, I'm, I'm trying to offer a model that you can, that, that scholars and other think, thinkers might find useful for reading contradictory texts that are loud about the problems that they are surrounded by and, and to make sense of those contradictions, not to make them disappear, not to say that they're hopeless, but to make sense of contradiction. You've been listening to an episode about the life and work of the Indian poet and philosopher Muhammad Iqbal. Thanks to Noman Fazi, Assistant Professor of Religion at the Lahore University of Management Sciences, Francesca Chubb Confer, Assistant Professor of Religion at Whitman College, and Shandeep Banerjee, Associate Professor of English at McGill University. Poetry readings by Samira Moyedin. Book readings by Greg Kelly from Muhammad Iqbal's The Reconstruction of Religious Thought in Islam and Anandamat by Bankim Chandra Chatterjee. This episode was produced by Nahid Mustafa. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.